Um, first of all, can you hear me? You can hear me, good. Um, thank you for coming. Um, and first of all, I want to um, thank the Royal Irish Academy for their invitation. I'm honoured to be here. Second, there have been a whole series of talks on Prager over the last few weeks by distinguished guests. And many of them are much more capable than I am of assessing Prager's historical and current contribution to the science of natural history. My interests in Prager are perhaps broader. As an historian of science, I want to locate in this lecture Prager at a particular time and also at a particular place in the cultures of science in the 19th and 20th century. The particular place I want to locate him is Belfast, where he was born and brought up. My interests, um, two themes will inform this talk. The first is the tradition and practice of natural history in Belfast in the decades preceding Prager's birth in 1865. And secondly, it's the impact upon the cultures of science and upon Prager in particular of the Darwinian revolution inaugurated in 1859 by the publication of The Origin of Species. I first want to talk a little bit about Belfast, what a marvellous thing technology is. Thank you, Petra, for all your help with guiding me um, to the slideshow. Um, the history of Belfast in the 19th century is in itself a very remarkable one. The impact of industrialization in of first linen, then shipbuilding, was huge. Belfast overtook Dublin in population in the 19th century. Its wealth increased. Inward immigration took place. Its politics was trans were transformed. And by 1914, Belfast was one of the major industrial centers of the British Empire. By 1821, the population of Ulster, around about 2 million, matched that of Scotland as a whole. Above all, the history of Belfast in the early 19th century showed all the familiar developments repeated in industrial cities in other parts of the United Kingdom. It saw the growth of a civic culture. This encompassed institutions like the voluntary hospital, the museum, the new civic buildings, zoological gardens, the provincial newspaper, the debating and literary societies, all of them created by the voluntary effort of the Belfast middle classes, and um, much of it depending on voluntary effort and on subscription. This process, which has, again is repeated in many industrialising cities in the British Isles, is partly about finding a new civic role for the middle classes, which reflected their increasing economic and political importance. Wider than this, it also created a new urban civilization and culture out of their efforts, and a culture which was uniquely the product of the middle class. Given the recent politics of Ireland in the 1790s, going back to the United Irishmen and Presbyterian radicalism and uh, the revolutionary movements taking place as a consequence of the French Revolution, this process, this um, phenomena of the creation of civic culture is perhaps even more significant in Ireland than it was in the rest of the British Isles. In the words of one recent political history of the period, to quote, questions of education, science and literature 
should not be seen as peripheral issues, meaning peripheral to politics. They were intimately related to important debates about how a nation should be defined. Science, therefore, end of quote, science, therefore, was the means to find a new basis in the industrializing city for social harmony and a new concept of what good citizenship would be. And in Ireland's case, the developments in science in Belfast in the early 19th century had strong links to the history of Ulster Presbyterian radicalism. And again, I'm going to refer back to this when I talk about the tradition of natural uh, history in Belfast. But before we do that, I want to move on to one of these important civic institutions which were created at the time. And this is the Belfast Naturalist Field Club. Something very significant in Prager's history. Now, the Belfast Field Club was founded in 1863 as an offshoot of the Natural History and Philosophical Philosophical Society, which was founded in itself in 1821. The Field Club reflects the industrial nature of Belfast very clearly, with a membership largely drawn from Belfast's industrial and commercial life. Of the original organising committee of 12, six were directly um, engaged in manufacturing. Two of the remaining six were clergymen who were sons of Belfast manufacturers, and this left a doctor, John Sinclair Holden, whose father was a rake collector, and a surgeon, John W. Brown. A third, William McMullen, was a schoolmaster. But the origins of one, William Campbell, I have not yet been able to trace. If anybody knows them, let me know. The social range of manufacturers represented in the field club was very broad, but initially very much at the affluent and substantial end of business. Later, Robert J. Welsh, who did the photography for the Clare Island Survey and who ran a photography business in Belfast, became an officer of the field club, in spite of opposition from one member because of his perceived lowly social origins. But on the whole, the club was largely middle class. There was a vigorous natural history tradition among the industrial working class, and this also includes Belfast. But clubs that charged entrance fees had problems in recruiting working class members. And there was always a danger of social embarrassment since much of the field club was devoted to soirees and picnics as well as excursions for collecting and lectures and and education. As Anne Secord, the chief historian of working-class natural history in the 19th century, has shown, this was sometimes a matter of regret. And elaborate relationships of mutual respect, usually, however, by correspondence, were often created uh, to overcome this problem of a class division in the practice of natural history. The field club allowed women to join, though no woman achieved office in the club until the turn of the century. Class and gender nonetheless influenced the composition of the club. But it was nonetheless a relatively open and democratic society. It was also a place where professional scientists and amateur worked together in reasonable equality. This is exemplified by the role of one person I know quite a bit about, um, because he's a Darwinian, which is Alfred Court Haddon, who was a pupil of Huxley and, uh, and uh, was professor at the, uh, of zoology at the, 
at the Dublin College of Science for around 20 years. Haddon then left for Cambridge around about the turn uh, uh, 1899 to 1900, and he becomes famous because he helps found the um, science of anthropology as an academic discipline at Cambridge University. Um, Haddon founded the Dublin Field Club in 1885 with E.P. Wright, and he made several trips to lecture the Belfast Field Club on his work, as well as teaching extension courses in Belfast. He engaged the field club to help with his own researches into Irish geology, antiquities, and ancient monuments. In particular, he was part of the he was the, uh, one of the on the ethnographic committee of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which in general encouraged amateur societies like field clubs to help them with an ethnographic survey of the British Isles in the 1890s. It was this which led to Haddon's interest in uh, field trips to the Aran Islands, which were, um, again, uh, partly economic investigations, partly anthropological, which collected folklore, and which were funded and assisted by the uh, Royal Irish Academy, but were actually um, primarily organized from Trinity College Dublin and from the anatomy department there. He, um, it was through the agency of the field club, however, that Haddon um, got, for example, in his, into his possession um, the papers and school collection of John Grattan, the Belfast chemist. His daughters were members of the field club and uh, they uh, gave um, Haddon their father's collection of information about primitive Irish anthropology. And if you look at uh, Haddon's papers in Cambridge, you will see notes on Grattan's papers very carefully transcribed. Haddon's also famous for organizing the first anthropological field trip in the history of the discipline, which took place to the Torres Straits in 1898. So that together with his field trip to Torres to collect uh, anthropological information on the inhabitants there, his Aran Island uh, trips, and his involvement with the field club, you can see percolating both the field club assisting in his work, he asked them to collect folklore tales, for example, but also the way in which ideas and experiences percolated across from um, Haddon to Prager um, and uh, from the field club um, to Haddon, uh, a kind of mutual uh, symbiosis. And it suggests that Prager, who knew Haddon, was listening and observing the outcome of Haddon's work while Haddon was engaging the field clubs as ancillaries and support in the development of his own scientific investigations. The field club has not disappeared, but it had a particular importance in the 19th century. There were scientific institutions, but far less than now. The universities in Ireland supported science as part of medical and engineering training, though, uh, though a, and though a, but though a tradition of natural philosophy and mathematics flourished, botany was largely done for pharmacology, geology for engineering and chemistry for forensic and public health purposes. So our research did exist in the universities, but until the turn of the century, till about around about 1900s, 1890s, research was not necessarily seen as an essential part of what the university was there for. That does change at the end of the 19th century. Now, Prager therefore created in the Clare Island survey not only the first organized natural history field trip on a large scale, but also perhaps the last great tribute to the 19th century tradition of natural history. 
For this field trip could not have got off the ground through professional and university science alone, but only by using the amateur natural historian. By 1909, however, the balances began to tip towards the professional scientists, recruited variously uh, on the trip from the Department of Agricultural and Technical Instruction, especially the marine laboratory that it ran, the National Museum and the universities. Nonetheless, on the field trip were an architect, two engineers, if we count Prager himself, a clerk at the Dublin Metropolitan Police Court, um, Nathaniel Colgan, who was also um, very interested in Darwinism too, um, and a barrister, two clergymen, someone described as a squire, what that is, somebody can explain to me, and of course the photographer, Robert Welch. Several women, among whom um, were trained scientists, still a relative rarity, were also involved. Therefore, we see the Clare Island Survey as very much a picture portrait of the Belfast Field Club, a democratic society united across class, not entirely, gender only partially, uh, but uh, relatively speaking for that period, and united by a common pursuit. Now, the Prager family were very much ensconced in the development of civic culture of Belfast, and also in its economy. Prager very much fits this pattern. His maternal grandfather, Robert Patterson, who lived from 1802 to 1872, worked in the mill furnishing industries, relatively prosperous too. Robert Patterson's two sons, Robert Lloyd and William Yu, had connections in the linen business. Prager himself started work as an engineer in the construction of the Belfast Harbour Works. All were natural historians on an amateur level. Robert Patterson inherited from William Thompson, the foremost natural historian in Ireland, perhaps in the 19th century, in the early 19th century anyway. Also a Belfast man, man connected to the linen industry, he inherited his papers with the task of completing Thompson's fourth volume of his magisterial national, natural history of Ireland, which was published 1849-50-52, and the final volume edited by Patterson was published in 1856. But perhaps even more significantly for the intellectual history of Clare Island, Prager, his maternal grandfather and his maternal grandfather's sons, Prager's uncles, were all educated at the Royal Belfast Academical Institution. This in the early 19th century was a particularly important source of intellectual development in Belfast and particularly of a strong tradition, of, uh, unique and particular, I think, in many ways, to Belfast of natural history. That's right. The person I want to talk about uh, now is a man called James Lawson Drummond who lived from 1783 to 1853. Drummond was educated at the Belfast Academy, gained a degree in medicine from Edinburgh. Um, lots of science was done by doctors in the 19th century because that's probably in medicine could you really um, get a scientific grounding and many people who then went on to specialise in, in science. But Drummond served as a surgeon in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. And after leaving the Navy, practiced as a doctor in Belfast and was physician to the Belfast dispensary between 1814 and 19. 
And in 1818, he was appointed to the Chair of Anatomy and Physiology at the Belfast Academical Institution and remained there as head of its School of Medicine until 1846. But it was his contribution to educating a generation of Belfast men and also perhaps their wives and daughters and sisters in the study of natural history in which his importance to this study lies. As an historian of liberal politics in the north of Ireland in the early 19th century, describes the Royal Belfast Academic Institution founded in 1806 under the patronage of William Drennan, the United Irishman, in this way. It was originally politically radical, though the institution modified its stance after 1817 in the direction of moderate unionism, moderate liberal unionism. It derived its ethos from the Scottish Enlightenment. It was liberal, both theologically, it had connections to the Reverend Henry Cook, and in its politics. It was also a driving force at this time for what was considered the most modern and progressive in education. Passing through its ranks were a very distinguished coterie of scholars, including Lord Kelvin in his early years, Viscount James Bryce, one of the key liberal intellectuals in Britain in the 19th century, James McKnight, editor of the Belfast Newsletter, the antiquarian Samuel Ferguson, Thomas O'Hagan, I, th I think the first Catholic Lord Chancellor of Ireland, Charles Gavin Duffy, the young Islander, William Porter, the liberal attorney general at the Cape of Good Hope, and Robert James Tennant, liberal MP for Belfast. Well, what relationship has this to the study of natural history? It is this, that the study of natural history was seen by this generation as part of general education, as the route to understanding the liberating power of reason, and also the means to advance human and social improvement. This was an ethos expressed most succinctly and thoroughly in Drummond's book, Letters to a Young Naturalist on the Study of Nature and Natural Religion, published by Drummond in 1831, an extremely high-quality publication. I'm not one for reading natural history books, but I've read a lot, mostly um, with difficulty and um, in pursuance of my academic um, work. But this is, was an extremely uh, stylish, accessible lively, interesting, and even riveting uh, book in its ability to engage the reader. And it's directed at young readers, so it was part of the curriculum or part of given to uh, a younger generation at the RBAI and elsewhere. It's based on a methodology of education. This proceeds modestly and step by step. The book begins with everyday questions about and observations of nature, invites the reader to frame questions and systemize the knowledge that is gained thereby by collecting and classifying. It starts from the young naturalist's immediate environment and proceeds eventually to examples drawn from more exotic locations. It encourages generalizations but constantly emits puzzles in nature which it invites the pupil to solve. It starts simply but ends with a quite sophisticated classificatory and analytic approach. Four major impulses lie behind it, and I want to talk later on in the uh, address about the specific influence of these on Prager's own natural history. But the first is the idea that the study of natural history 
encourages piety and a belief in God. This was perhaps one of the first casualties of the Darwinian revolution, but not, as I will try to show, entirely um, uh, abandoned. The second uh, impulse is that it unlocks, the study of natural history unlocks the door to aesthetic pleasure in nature. The uh, letters are very much part of the romantic movement um, in which science and art are seen not as opposed, but on a continuum of experience which merge into each other. So it's perfectly, as we will see, perfectly um, acceptable for um, poets to take an interest in science, for scientists to take an interest in poetry, and for the two to be seen as just um, various sides of the appreciation of the beauty, wonder of nature. The fourth uh, idea from Drummond is the idea of the regularity of laws in nature, that nature works according to clear, discoverable mechanisms found everywhere and which are seldom interrupted. I'll come back to this in a minute. But the third is the, is the study, um, not the third, that was the third, this is the fourth. The study of nature leads to intellectual, political, and social enlightenment. In letters to a young naturalist, Drummond taught that the study of natural history reduced superstition. To quote, we are more wise and just at the present day because knowledge and science have greatly increased. For in proportion as a people become more enlightened by science, do persistent superstitions decline. There are still indeed believers in dreams, spirits, omens, charms, and fortune-telling and other similar nonsense, but I suggest they are much on the decrease. Again, we'll see why perhaps it's not just natural historians, but politicians who might learn a rhetoric of language applicable to society as a whole from the study of natural history. And he goes on to say that were superstition and irrationalism, which whose object uh, it is for science to lift or uh, to dispel, where they persist, they are the result of early conditioning or social pressure. So he, uh, to quote him, he says, you laugh at the supposed efficacy of a pilgrimage to Mecca. But these and many more incomprehensible and unnatural things you would have had to believe had you been born in Constantinople and your parents had been true followers of the prophet. Among the first ideas impressed upon your infant mind would have been that eternal suffering would be your lot after death if during your life you had not, been per you had not perfectly relied upon the truth of the Quran. Had such been your education, had such ideas been impressed on your mind, the importance of education again, from the earliest dawn of thought and memory, it would not be easy for you to see the truth. Thus, the study of natural history was the practice of reason applied to nature, and it taught you to achieve general emancipation of the mind. And along with this comes the idea of increasing freedom as necessary uh, in order that reason and emancipation of the mind should flourish. To quote, to possess the courage of thinking for oneself is, in my humble opinion, of estimable value. To be bowed down under the mental tyranny of others, to be obliged to subscribe to opinions which in our consciousness we doubt or think erroneous is the most miserable slavery. This is a natural history book, but it talks really um, the voice of Ulster Presbyterian radicalism when it describes this.
shaking off superstition, the application of reason to the world and freedom of thought, led in Drummer's view to the idea that nature was designed by God and represented what he called perfect government. The underlying implications for that generation were political perhaps as well as um, scientific. Perfect governance had not been achieved in human affairs, but it could, by the exercise of the faculty of reason, be more nearly approached. Reason also meant the embrace of the regularity of laws, and Drummond complained about those two, quote, who put a chief value on deviations from nature and consider only as curious and interesting those irregular productions which break through her laws, which mar her beauty, which are aberrations from the wisdom that formed everything in perfection without blemish, without possibility of amendment. Now, just very briefly, want to talk about the influence on the Pattersons and Prager. I would argue that Drummond's natural history, as it were, percolated through Prager's family traditions. Take Patterson's, Robert Patterson's, On the Study of Natural History as a Branch of Education, which was published in 1840. In this, he lists the intellectual benefits from introducing the study of nature into schools, elementary schools. That it increases the power of observation, it allows the cultivation of the noting of resemblances and differences, it introduces the concept of classification, which in turn encourages discrimination and accuracy. And it has moral effects because it promotes orderly habits and encourages an appreciation of God's plan. Though Patterson lived long enough to see the arrival of Darwin, there is little evidence of major disruption to the framework in which Robert Patterson worked. Several editions of the introduction of, uh, to zoology for the use of schools were uh, published between 1857 and, 18, and his death in 1872. And though the books talked about the apparent similarities between man and ape, they also confirmed in those editions the impassable barrier between them until the last edition in 1872, in which this reference to the impassable barrier has been dropped quietly and silently, but without comment. Patterson, however, also um, exemplifies not only the notion of um, general education, of reason, uh, uh, etc., but um, of the aesthetic appreciation of nature. And he goes on to publish with his wife, Mary, a volume of poetry in 1886, which illustrates the peculiar blend of romantic appreciation of the beauty of nature, access to the science of natural history and the predominance of reason as a liberating force. Having described the cold rain and mist over the morns, which many walkers in those um, mountains will uh, testify to, the Pattersons come to their own conclusion in the last verse of, a, of the poem, The Morns. Yet is the gloominess a transient thing, it floats from all the mountains like a dream, whene'er the sun's glad rays these, their splendours fling freshing the meadow, glancing the stream, and thus the darkness of our mortal lot, the sadness found within the human breast, yields to the glorious light from reason caught and sinks in immortality to rest. Okay. Darwin. Well, Darwin comes to Belfast, um, in, and it's largely been seen as an outcome of Tyndall's address um, to the British, annual British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting of 1874, which was held in Belfast. 
uh, and uh, Tyndall presented before his audience an evolutionary cosmology incorporating Darwinism as the last building brick in the triumph of evolutionary methods. And Tyndall's address in 1874 also talked about the conflict between science and religion, came down firmly on the need for science to rid itself of theology and, uh, and uh, to be allowed to be practiced free of clerical in interference. And as the historian David Livingston has pointed out, Tyndall's address certainly catapulted the issue of evolution and the relationship between science and religion before a wide Irish audience and sharpened the religious debate. Um, the address is also very significant because it enters the canon of significant Darwinian interventions in the intellectual life of the 19th century, not just in Ireland but worldwide. But in a way that unfortunately perhaps extinguishes some of the particular Irish context. Uh, which influenced it. But my argument is that Darwin had already arrived in Belfast before 1874, and there were serious discussions about Darwin in the Belfast Field Club in the 1860s. John Sinclair Holden, the doctor, took a very pro-Darwinian position, and um, another member, John Joseph Murphy, 1827 to 1894, who was owner of the Linfield uh, Mill, later the Ulster Weaving Company, produced a series of books on evolution in the 1860s and 70s, published mainly before Tyndall, which received a very serious national evaluation. Though he's quite critical of Darwin, he's very religiously inclined, Murphy believed in evolution and natural selection, but still defended the idea of a first cause and of evolution towards a goal rather than simply a series uh, of at random accidents. Murphy could in fact be classed as moderately evolutionist and of one of those opening the debate around the possibility eventually of a reconciliation between Darwinism and religious belief. One of the reasons perhaps for Murphy's views on Darwin was, was that in some respects Darwin could be seen as exemplifying the past 50 years of Belfast industrialization. And this may be one perhaps interesting um, sidelight on where Darwin was, um, where Darwin could most um, easily incorporate itself in the intellectual life of the 19th century. So that, for example, um, Murphy talks about um, Darwin's ideas in this way, uh, vindicating perhaps again the Drummondite view of the role of reason in human history. He goes on. Murphy says, when nature as distinguished from mere empires are consolidated, conquest ceases to be an agency of improvement. And thenceforth, historical progress must be chiefly due to the arts of peace, industrial as well as political. But progress is still due to the process of natural selection, he believed in a modified version of it. Though natural selection is now applied not to the races of men, but to institutions and ideas in the peaceful strife of our modern times, however, the principle to which progress is due is still the same, namely free competition and the victory and preservation of the best. It is only on this principle that freedom can be justified. Again, a manifesto of the 19th century industrial middle class and a defense of capitalism too. So, whatever the perturbations brought about by Tyndall's Belfast Address in 1874, they were, in fact, relatively brief. The soil of Belfast was quite conducive to Darwinism. In 1894, Tyndall made a further visit to Belfast, and the journalist Frank, uh, Frankfurt Moore commentated that, to quote, he came to Belfast, an honored guest of the city, 
and pass some days in the official residency of the Presbyterian president of, president of Queen's College, who'd been a pupil of the divinity school of the clergyman who had written the book that was supposed to have reconsecrated, as it were, the locality defiled by the British Association Address of 1874. This he wrote in the 1890s. By the time of the British Association meeting in Belfast in 1902, it was generally agreed that in the words of the Witness, the leading Presbyterian newspaper in the North, who'd been loud in their condemnation of Tyndall in 1874, to quote, there should never have been a quarrel. It was a quarrel created by ignorant churchmen blinded by mistaken views of the Bible and of religion and by heady, high-minded science men excited by the new speculations, eager to overthrow and discredit the theologians. Darwin had even secured the approval of John Swanwick Drennan, the descendant of William Drennan, the United Irishman. Drennan published in 1895 an ode to Darwin. I don't want to read it out. Uh, You can read it for yourself, and it almost makes you wish that Darwin had never published The Origin of Species. It's pretty bad. But again, uh, it shows a kind of almost, um, you know, idolization of Darwin and he published this in 1894 so Prager belonged to a second generation of Belfast men and women who had struggled with Darwin and come to at least an uneasy truth and at most enthusiastic embrace and therefore I want to um, reach the final part of this address with these ideas we have two legacies for Prager in broader intellectual influences. One coming through Drummond and the Pattersons, the tradition of Belfast history, and the other through Darwin. And the final part of this address will look at the intermingling of these two cultures in Prager's work. First, I've already made the suggestion that the Clare Island Survey replicated the field club, though it carried it much further in its organisation and its intermingling of amateur and science and its collective effort and organisational principles. In that respect, it is you know, unique and a, a great advance. But Darwin certainly guided the survey's larger horizons. And I think perhaps Prager's openness to um, putting a Darwinian question uh, to the researchers of Clare Island was um, because in a a way that uh, the Drummondite tradition, it's a kind of fusion of the Drummondite tradition. First of all, the idea of belief in the regularity of laws and the unimportance of the miracle or the odd or extraneous event. He very much, that does cultivate among uh, um, natural historians a kind of open-minded idea to uh, to what um, was Darwin's evolutionism was built upon Lyle's uniformitarianism. And Drummond had already amplified this idea of uniformitarianism, the regularity, constancy, and observability of laws throughout uh, nature. He'd already exemplified the philosophical basis of this. The second idea, which I think makes Prager open-minded from the Durhamandite tradition, was that science was an open-ended question, that mystery and apparently unknowable things existed, but the end of science was eventually to reveal them by step by step. And for this end, freedom of thought and speculation was necessary. And again, I think this was fertile um, ground laid for the appreciation of Darwin in Belfast. 
So though Drummond would have disputed with Darwin the existence of a first cause, the perfection of adaption, and the fit between flora and fauna and their habitat, Drummond did encourage a degree of open-mindedness and a certain confidence that all knowledge would perhaps ultimately be reconcilable with the divine plan, which is what Murphy does because he believes in evolution, natural selection, but he still argues there is a divine plan. So the Clare Island Survey and Darwin, the big question in the Clare Island Survey was derived from Darwin's discussion in the origin of the influence of geographical distribution in producing varieties and species. This was a really important technical question, but it's also a religious question too because um, at this point um, it's an attack on the idea of simultaneous creation of uh, flora and fauna adapted to particular geographic um, locations. So Darwin says, we are thus brought to the question which has been largely discussed by naturalists, namely whether species have been created at one or more points of the Earth's surface. Undoubtedly, there are many cases of extreme difficulty in understanding how the same species could possibly have migrated from some one point to the several distant and isolated points which we, where they now are found. Nevertheless, the simplicity of the view that each species was first produced within a single region captivates the mind. He who rejects it rejects the vera causa of original gener generation with subsequent migration and calls in the agency of a miracle. So it's a very much a passage about addressing um, religion, but it's also about how you show and how you demonstrate the reality of migration in nature. Migration... Um, so the, tra the tra I'm coming to an end now, but the tracing of relationship between fauna and flora and adjoining or even far distant islands was pretty central to the Darwinian concept. And in the introduction to the Clare Island survey, it is recorded as a question of, to quote, fundamental biological importance. And this means that much of the investigation could be used as a test of the Darwinian concept of evolutionary change and speciation. Problems remained which the Clare, uh, the Clare Island survey wanted to solve. How in particular locations this historical process of migration could have occurred. It was a problem of how. In particular, what were the conditions which allowed migration of flora and fauna across water? Whether they had, um, were also influenced by the history of the geological origin of an island, whether it had split off from the mainland. Uh, whether it was accessible to colonization and so forth. The Clare Island survey did not produce any startling answers to this question. The survey's conclusion was that the island and mainland were connected in the past so that land rather than marine migration characterized it. As for the importance of migration, could the flora and fauna have crossed the water once the island had separated? On the particularities of this, there was to quote, Unanimity of opinion that the narrow strait of sea that separates Clare Island from the mainland represents a very serious barrier to migration. This was due to a variety of factors, among which included the unfavorable nature of the prevailing winds, the currents around the island, the point at which the mainland expelled its streams into the ocean, and the migratory routes of um, birds. But the result also was, to quote, a body of valuable opinion on the subject is the outcome of the survey. So in a sense... No great, um, interesting final conclusions or discoveries, perhaps, but uh, it's seen as a contribution to the debate and the Darwinian debate. And amid these strong Darwinian influences, Prager nonetheless, I think, 
maintain the Drummanite and Patterson tradition. And he did this in various ways. First, Prager clearly sees natural history as a branch of general education. Many of his writings address popular audiences. And these popular audiences are aimed at entertainment and perhaps to make a living, that's true, but also enlightenment, and they have clear philosophical messages. So that well into the 20th century, Prager, who at the time in the 1920s and 30s was corresponding with full-time professional botanists in the university system, had still, and had consolidated a place within professional science, although still amateur, still addressed a general audience. But Darwin did just change the philosophical and moral lessons of nature in Prager. Natural selection had led to the displacement of man as the center of the universe, and greater insecurities arose from this revolution in the idea of man's place in nature. There was, I think, in Prager a greater sense of the fragility of the human enterprise, of the vastness and unfriendliness of the universe, and of the contingent nature of the development of human affairs. And Prager reflects this when he wrote, it might make us a little more humble to reflect that we are mere pensioners of the grasses of the field, that we hold our lives at the whim of a butterfly. Not only that, but we are equally or still more dependent for our continued existence upon the minutest and most lowly of all forms of life, such as the invisible bacteria, which in many different ways render this world habitable for us. And in a summary of evolution, in life and the universe from beyond soundings, he describes the fact that no fixed point or final revelation of the divine plan, such as traditional natural theology offered, is available. Instead, this is replaced in Prager by a sense of impermanence. To quote, if the past foreshadows the future, all things will change and change again. In tens of thousands of different in in tens of thousands of years, different forms, species, and animals have appeared, only to disappear again. At present, the vegetable and animal worlds are dominated respectively by flowering plants and by man. Will these also give way in their turn to something higher and so progressively towards some far-off divine event? That's Drummond. But, or will life eventually descend as the sun's heat diminishes? and cease at length. Prager still, as the passage quoted reveals, keeps asking Drummondite questions, how how to chart and explain the direction of evolution, the ultimate end of all these developments in nature, the possibility of a better end. But no security exists now as to its final attainment. But finally, there is in Prager some aesthetic pleasure, just like his grandparents, Um, to be derived from the study of nature. I want to go back to the Morns because this is what Prager uh, says to round off in a passage remarkably similar to the poem written on the Morns, written by his maternal grandparents in 1886. Prager describes a walk through Dublin. I return to the mud at Grattan Bridge, feeling I am rapidly approaching that state of dejection, gloom, mist, rain, which drives the strong-minded to the public house. When from low down in the western sky there comes a gleam of yellow light, rapidly broadening and brightening, and then suddenly five great swans appear flying down the centre of the river in perfect formation, long necks outstretched, broad wings beating in unison, they sweep by majestically, 
a vision of pure beauty, gleaming plumage, all snowy against the old houses opposite. While I still watch their receding forms fading into the smoky mist, a low red sun bursts out from underneath the bank of cloud. One gazes at a dream city, beautiful beyond belief, and while I stand, a breath of softer air, bringing with it hope and a lifting of spirit, comes from the West. Thank you very much.